Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. From KCBS Radio in San Francisco, I'm Matt Pittman, and this is Bay Current for Thursday, January 6th. One year ago today, the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol during the certification of the 2020 presidential election. Reflecting on one year since the insurrection can feel pretty overwhelming, I'll be honest. Looking at what happened and what we've learned versus where we are right now, how it changed everything about the national political landscape. Some of the most thoughtful voices about our current state of the union, in my opinion, have been from thebulwark.com. This is a collection of essentially never Trumpers. These are folks who were talk radio hosts, national writers of the highest reputation in conservative circles for decades, but they could never come around to getting on the Trump train around 2015 and 2016. So I connected with Tim Miller, writer with The Bulwark. Tim's career in Republican politics is extensive. He was communications director for the 2016 presidential campaign of Jeb Bush. Before that, comms director in 2012 for the presidential campaign of John Huntsman. Later, he joined Mitt Romney's 2012 presidential campaign. Tim and his family make their home here in the Bay Area, in Oakland. And so I thought he'd be the perfect person to connect with, to look back at one year ago today, everything that's happened and what it means moving forward. Bulwark writer Tim Miller, former Republican strategist, right, Tim? Former? I got the former in there. Former. That former, is, that is correct. Okay. You were pretty deep in the machine for a number of years. You were uh, comms director for Jeb Bush's 2016 presidential campaign. I believe John Huntsman in 2012 and later in that campaign, uh, the eventual nominee, Mitt Romney, you worked on that campaign as well. So uh, to say former Republican, I mean, that that was a, I imagine, a pretty seminal life event for you to 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 kind of step away from that in the wake of uh, what your personal convictions told you about how the Republican Party was trending um, as Donald Trump was ascending to the nomination back in 2016. Yeah, I mean, I was always one of the more moderate Republicans, as you could tell by that resume item. I was McCain before that. So, you know, all of the now extinct rhinos. But I, I thought it was worth 
fighting for, you know, and, I, and and so and part of it is, I think, that when you're in politics, your party identification is part of your identity, uh, you know, in a way that it might not be for, I think, regular folks who aren't as obsessive about politics as we are, whose profession is in politics. But I, I wanted to stick with it through 2020. I was hoping I knew it would probably be fruitless, but I was hoping someone would try to primary Trump in order to, you know, send a message that there was another type of Republican out there as another type of conservative. And, uh, you know, obviously it was clear that there's just no interest in that at this point. And so, yeah. you know, it's, it's interesting to, to relevant to our one six conversation. I, I, I let, I wrote about leaving the party about a month after the November, 2020 election, officially leaving the party. And, and, and I cited as the last straw, the ongoing, uh, you know, election fraud conspiracies. And I, and I just said, this is too much. Like, this, this is not recoverable. We, we lost the election. It's the world's longest running democracy. We need to have a peaceful transfer of power. This is how we've always done it. And, and you know, the fact that no one was standing up to Trump, everyone was going along with it up until January 6th, after he had already lost, um, was just the final straw. And I, I knew, I sensed I didn't know exactly what was going to happen. I did. I don't think any of us expected that. You know, our capital was going to be stormed, uh, but I sensed that something very bad was going to happen. Watching, you know, the fallout from the post-election, and just knew I could no longer, no longer be a part of it. And and then, you know, it all came to life on on January the sixth. So looking back at it, one full calendar year later, it, yeah. and I hope this doesn't sound too like hyperbolic or melodramatic, but. It almost feels like this was inevitable at this point, as, as, yeah. especially as we've learned so much about uh, the layers of coordination and all the pieces of information that we continue to, to, to find out that Donald Trump shattered norms daily for four years as president of the United States. And he couldn't have done that without a deep network of enablers to to surround yeah. him and say, okay, the, the, we'll sign off on this, whether that was at, at various degrees, a Paul Ryan or later on a Kevin McCarthy, uh, the more extreme wings inside on Capitol Hill, guys like Jim Jordan, things like that. But am I being too dramatic to say it kind of feels like, of course, this would be how the Trump presidency would end. I like the word, of course, because of course it would. And, and of those of us whose eyes, yeah, those of us whose eyes were wide open in 2015, you know, I was never Trump away back in 2016, voted for voted for Hillary. And, uh, you know, as part of a, uh, a group that was very ironically now called Our Principles Pack uh, <laughs> that was trying to stop Trump from winning the nomination. I joined that a couple of days after Jeb lost. And literally every member of Our Principles Pack, including the funders, ended up supporting Donald Trump in the general election, except for me and one other person. <laughs> so that was a good preview for me. And to add, to how complicit everyone was going to be. So uh, for those who are eyes wide open about all of Trump's manifest flaws, of course it was going to end. I, I don't like the word inevitable because I, I, history is contingent, right? And I think that a lot of times there is a sense from, you know, analysts and, and people to want to, you know, say that, you know, that, that there are these broad trends that are, that are going on over the scope of history and that there's nothing that can be done. And, uh, you know, yes, there's a global populist trend. And yes, I, I think that Donald Trump's flaws, we all knew that it was going to end in disaster. But something could have been done. No, Choice, no. Choices could have been made differently, right? It wasn't inevitable in the sense that had a few people, people done the right, a few more people done the right thing, right? I mean, on the one hand, it wasn't inevitable that it would fail. Right. If you, if you had Marjorie Taylor Greene instead of Brad Raffensperger as the Georgia Secretary of State, maybe the Georgia, 
you know, situation would have been different, right? If you had a Republican um, in office in, in Montana, or not Montana, excuse me, in Michigan and Pennsylvania instead of Democrats, maybe things would have been different there as far as trying to overturn the results. So, so it could have been worse, but it also could have been better. You know, I had more. I had, I had Mike Pence spoken out earlier, and and all of the and John Kelly and Right Street Right had every Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy had all these people said on November eighth, enough, mm-hmm. enough. Okay, it's over. Right? Had these guys all stood shoulder to shoulder and said it's over, there still would have been a rump group that was pushing for. You know, this kind of preposterous coup and, you know, the election fraud conspiracies, but I don't think it would have had the momentum. It got the momentum it did because all of these guys refused to stand up to him. And that's our big lesson because they still are refusing to stand up to him today, a year later. So one of your colleagues at the Bulwark, uh, JVL, Jonathan V. Last, he said over and over again, I think also JVL might be my spirit animal because he says things that I think and I'm you know, not willing to say out loud. It's certainly not on, on, on a podcast. But one of the things he says is that the Republican Party doesn't have a Trump problem. They have a voter problem. They are yeah. so scared of their voters because Donald Trump has such a vice grip on the, the base. Right. And that's reflected in some of the most recent polling that has come out over the last few days that. 60%, according to the latest AP Norse poll, 60% of Republicans say that Trump bears little or no responsibility. And even that number is like 11 points lower than it was a year ago. Yeah. And and only 41% of respondents in this poll, Tim, said that Republicans in Congress deserve a great deal or quite a bit of responsibility. So if there's no penalty for these members of Congress who go along with this, and then you mentioned that, hey, yeah, if, if Marjorie Taylor Greene is the secretary of state in Georgia and not Brad Raffensperger, we might be having a completely different conversation right now. So isn't that con- the concern, though, that now the, the blueprint has been manufactured and they have the playbook to do this again if they lose the presidential election in 2024, that they now have a playbook where they can actually go and actually run a, a cleaner coup, if you will? Yeah, I- Look, look I, I think I think that that is right. The sense that the the um, the trouble within the Republican Party, it's you know, the, it, it's a bottom up problem, right? Now, I mean, it's a, it's top down from in the sense that Trump has all of his personal flaws, right? But, but the fact that the voters want all of this is what's driving these decisions. And I think in a weird way, that's how you know, like us never Trumpers, former Republicans, we all have our flaws. We're not uh, you know all seeing and see things perfect. Obviously, I missed stuff leading up to 2016, or, or maybe I wouldn't have been going along with it as long as I did. But but one thing we saw clearly is this is exactly what you say that like that it's the voters that are in charge. And the voters want this chaos. The voters want the left. And, you know, the we're on San Francisco podcast, so we'll say the coastal elites. Yep. Uh, they want them punished, right? Like, that's what these voters are, are looking for. They wanted someone that was going to fight for it, no matter what the rules were. And, and, so, and so on January 6th and 7th, when you remember, you know, kind of after it happened, the Lindsey Grahams of the world and Mitch McConnell speaking out against this for a day or two, we at the Bulwark, we all knew that that wasn't going to last because we were seeing this clearly. Is that the, those guys are 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 still you know servants to their to the mob, 
mm-hmm. right? They're servants to their own voters, and their voters are going to want them to go along with this. But they were letting their emotions get the better of them that day, and so and so that and, and so I think that explains what you've seen this last year, where all of those people who are outraged at Trump, you know, there have been plenty of videos you can go on and look about all of what Republicans were saying the week after January 6, twenty twenty one, and how their tune has changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you know, the the reason that has happened is because of what the voters want, and so now if you look at who's running for office and, and, and Republicans at lower offices, at Secretary of State, all the way up to Senate office, all of these people are still fully in on the coup, right? Like, Not only has there not been a backtrack after what happened at the Capitol, it's actually gotten worse. The party is more lockstep in this notion that, you know, the election was stolen and that next time that they have to do it better. That's the scary part about all this. Right, right. You mentioned the word fight, and that's the word that we heard, you know, when Donald Trump came down the escalator in 2015, the people latched on to him was that he's a fighter. He fights for us. And then it it just became all about the fight and obstruction in Congress and just doing stuff just because they could, because it made the libs mad. It was all about owning the libs. Um, We talk about that. I'm talking about that like as a metaphor. Right. But when you look at against some of this polling. What was it? The CBS, CBS um, YouGov poll, like 62 percent of Americans said that they expect violence over losing in future presidential elections. Even more concerning yeah. of that kind of subset of numbers, 40 percent of Republicans, 40 percent of Republicans, Tim, said that violence against government is sometimes justified. And yeah. so at what point did we sort of cross that Rubicon, if you will, to fight being this metaphor for a guy who's going to go in there and ostensibly shake up the system like they hoped Donald Trump would versus actually fighting with, you know, hammers and and baseball bats and the sort of violence that we saw on the 6th last year? Yeah, I mean, I do think that obviously that Trump, you know, you know, was symptom and cause, right? So some of this dates back further and you look back to the Tea Party, you know, this was a big um, uh, rallying cry for them, right? It was like fighting against the Obama administration, fighting against Obamacare. You know, they'd shut down the government a couple of times. So they didn't really have any plan with what they were going to do. But, but, oh, John Boehner and those moderates, they just want to work with Obama and compromise. We need somebody that's going to fight him, right? So, so it, it went back before Trump. But I, I think that the violence, you know, Trump was the first time at least in, in, in our era, right? And I think if you go back to the 60s and 70s, obviously there are other examples of, of this, George Wallace, et cetera. And, uh, you know, obviously we don't want to un- undermine that and like the racial violence of the civil rights era. But in, in the modern times, in this century, um, you know, I, Trump was the first time when he was running in 2016, when he he was encouraging literal, literal fighting, right? Yes. You know, I remember there'd be people at his rallies and, and, you know, he'd say, beat him up and say, you know, he said that he'd pay for people's bills, you know, if they got, um, you know, if they got in trouble for fighting the protesters at their, at their rallies. Now, he never was going to because he's a scam artist, but, but right, like he, that was what he said, right? He told them that, you know, that he, he would give them cover for this. And there was this kind of machismo of yeah. the MAGA, yeah. of right, this tough guy. Right? So, so it, it transcended fighting on policy in, into a much more, I, I think, you know, sort of physical, like overcompensating masculinity, right? And 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 I think that that that, tr- that Trump himself was a big instigator of that, um, you know, uh, of that progression of something that was, you know, he grabbed onto this anger and this desire to fight that had been that had been bubbling on the right for a long time, and, and I think he ma- manifested it and made it more 
you know, into into what we've what we saw in the sixth. Mm-hmm. Even today, we learned that you know, Biden administration they've talked about uh, some of the findings that various Justice Department investigations have uncovered about uh, lapses in security, lack of preparation, lack of information sharing, and intelligence, and various aspects of what I think is kind of a conventional approach to safety and security and just like policing, if you will. Yeah. But is is that the wrong approach? to avoiding this happening again, instead of worrying, well, we need more barricades, we need to, (laughs) more officers, National Guard needs to stand by. That's all fine and well, but when you've got the dudes with the congressional pin on their lapels and their suit and ties, and they're in there during the certification, and they're throwing out, or attempting to throw out entire slates, states' ballots, when you've got members of Congress that are willing to sign up, sign off on this, and manipulate the Constitution any which way they can to get the guy in that they want. I don't think that the National Guard's going to really come in handy for for that, right? So <laughs> yeah, is, this is, is where Garland. Wrong? Yeah, this is where Garland and the January sixth committee really need to step up because we already talked about how voters aren't going to hold these these people responsible, the perpetrators, the, the people who planned all this, the people who voted to take away people's legal vote. Um, and and you know you're right. I think this typical policing. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm I'm happy with, with the fact that the FBI has done a good job going after the people that went into the Capitol, particularly those that are violent. But you know, some of these people are mentally deranged. Right? Like some of these people are are in some ways victims themselves. Right? Like they they were lied to, and they, you know they they were they were they were. You know, their grievances were animated by, by people who were just thirsty for power, right? And so, you know, th- those folks should, should you know, face the consequences of the law. But I, I, it doesn't do anything to solve our greater problems, and it doesn't satisfy me, really, for, you know, the QAnon shaman guy in the horns to go to jail. Yeah. It's like the guy in the horns isn't the problem. I mean, he's part of the problem, but he's a small part of the problem. The problem was the people, as you said, with congressional pins who were working to plan this— uh, it was Peter Navarro inside the White House. It yeah. was Steve Bannon, Trump's former chief strategist. Who was, I'm working on an article on him. Was you know running a pro-insurrection podcast that's in the top ten on Apple still yeah, today, yeah. right? Like these are the, the these are the orchestrators that need to be held to account. And, and as of yet, we're not seeing that. Hmm. So, grab your crystal ball and let's look ahead a little bit. It's 2024. Whether it's uh, President Biden or it's Vice President Harris, the Democrat nominee wins the election, wins the popular vote, wins the Electoral College vote. Are we talking about President Donald Trump? Is Donald Trump going to be president in 2024 because it's going to be a much cleaner version of getting him appointed president than it was in the attempted coup in 2021? Man, uh, it's a long way out from that. So I don't, I, you know, I, I'm bad at predictions. I don't want to get my crystal ball. I think the most important thing is that's not crazy. It's but like, isn't even that nuts? It's, two, it's yeah, crazy it's that it's not crazy. Chance. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Even if there's only a two, I think it might be a little higher that there could be a situation where you know, look. If this election was closer, Biden won it by enough that they would have had to overturn three states. You know, you need a lot of people complicit, right? You need state legislatures and secretaries of state, three different states to overturn it. Then you need all the con- you know Republican Congress to go along with it, right? So. 
So it was never really going to happen for them in 2020, even if things had gone better. But but what if it had only been one state, Mm -hmm. right? And like, what if that state had been closer, been more like Florida in 2000, right? Where where you know it was you know close to to a coin flip, right? Is it is it possible that next time that they would try to to flip it and not send and not send the electors, and that Republicans would hold the House of Representatives, and that the the election would be thrown to the House of Representatives like it was you know back in 1876? I, I, that's not that, that. That's very possible, and, and I think that the, the Democrats and the public need to take very seriously, you know, the ramifications of something such as that. Um, and, and I think the downstream effects, would obviously, between the violence and the, uh, the un- instability, I mean, it's it's really hard to to imagine all the potential risks from that. And so, even if that's only a two percent chance, I think it's a little bit higher than that. But even if it's only a two percent chance. Uh, we need to be very serious about doing everything possible to stamp out that 2% chance, reform the Electoral Count Act, to make the changes that are necessary to guard against that. Um, and and uh, I'm a little bit concerned about the lack of urgency on that front coming out of Washington. Thanks again to Tim Miller, writer at The Bulwark. And thank you for listening. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Bay Current on the Odyssey app, Apple or Google Podcasts, or just about anywhere you listen. We have new episodes out every day, and we'd love to be part of your routine. We're also on YouTube on the KCBS Radio YouTube page. That's it for today's Bay Current. I'm Matt Pittman. We'll chat with you again tomorrow. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.